What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What Lighting Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at Lending Community Foundation. Today I'm joined by Dr. Annalise Trudell, a gender equity consultant and the manager of prevention education and research at ANOVA, the gender-based violence shelter and sexual assault center in London, Ontario. Hi, Annalise. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. And thank you for being on our show. Um, For our listeners who don't know who you are and the organization ANOVA, can you share a little bit about what the organization does and your role specifically with ANOVA? For sure. So ANOVA is the gender-based violence uh, shelter and sexual assault center for the region. We also host the 24-7 crisis and support line for the region, have lots of outreach services. But what my team does in particular within that work is we do the violence prevention programming. So that involves engaging with youth, um, doing professional trainings with workplaces or developing professionals around, say, trauma and violence-informed practice, bystander training. Um, And we're also doing, you know, work on our post-secondary campuses in particular. Yeah, finally. Is, yeah, I find that very yeah, interesting. No, we want to talk about we that do. later. But I also, because of my own background um, as a researcher, hold the research partnerships for the organization. And that's a really sort of unique role because of the size that we have. So we're, we're much larger than most similar organizations in other jurisdictions. We're about 100 staff, five locations. Um, so we've had the ability to put some sort of resources and efforts into ensuring that we are on sort of front lines of the research being developed as well. Which is quite remarkable uh, for an organization like this that's providing these types of services to also um, marry that practical knowledge with also your knowledge, you know, being a researcher and putting that together, I find is very strategic for sure. Um Right off the top, just in case our listeners aren't familiar with the language of um, gender-based violence, can you explain what that spectrum means uh, to our listeners, just so everybody understands that we're starting from the same place? For sure. Language is always in flux. So a decade ago, this probably wouldn't be quite what we were saying. And a decade from now, I'm sure it'll be different. What gender-based violence means is that any violence and violence in the broadest sense here, so not necessarily physical, it can be verbal, it can be power and control, it can be sort of unwanted behavior targeted, but any of it that is connected to gender and sex. So in the past, we may have talked about, or even some folks still do, violence against women. And that's for sure important and part of that work, but it's not the full sort of capturing of it. It misses in particular the trans and non-binary population who experience violence at even higher rates than straight women do. So we want to make sure that we're capturing all violence that is really linked to sort of unwanted behavior that is because of sex and gender. Thank you for explaining that. And it's interesting, not a lot of people would realize that trans and non-binary people experience far more uh, gender-based violence than, say, women. That is what you said, right? Yeah. So, I mean, women 
as a word captures both trans women and cis women. So as a cis woman, we may not even know that terminology sometimes, but if you were a person who was assigned at birth as a woman and then lived your life as a woman, you were called a cis woman. And, um, but trans women in particular experienced the highest rates of sexual assault and sexual violence in particular. Now, yes, they're a very small population, but as a percentage, it's hugely targeted. Thank you for sharing that. So um, last year, you wrote a powerful blog post on preventing sexual violence for a vital signs report. Um, In that post, you talked about reported sexual assaults at Western University during Frosh Week, which a lot of us had heard uh, through the media and reading through the newspapers. Can you tell us about some of the changes that have taken place uh, since those reports? Where are we at today with this? So those early reports led to not only a local, but a national conversation about what kind of accountability campuses have around sexual violence. In terms of our local atmosphere, uh, Western launched an action team and sort of an action priority that really spent months looking at what actions on campus need to occur. They came out with a recommendation report back in May. It's fulsome, we can talk about it. But in the interim of that, the president very quickly after those events announced mandatory training for all first years in residence and asked ANOVA and the Center for Research on Violence Against Women and Children to lead that. So last January to March, we did something that's not been done elsewhere in the country, which is small groups, so 30 students or less, in-person deep conversations around sex, violence, harm. Now, why this is really important to me um, is that we know that, yes, students have had education around consent. Actually, 90% of incoming first years can define what is consent. So it's not an issue of knowledge. There's something blocking the behavior change. So teaching them what consent is is not going to do the trick anymore. So those small group conversations are getting into those behavior patterns and why they exist. In May, they made the recommendation to continue this on an annual basis. So right now we're in the midst of that. Before even arriving on campus this time around, first years are going to go through that training on Zoom from their grade 12 bedroom homes. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, What is the response like so far uh, from the students with these programs? I have a, a line that I always say in our education programming and training, which is that if if we leave a training session and everyone feels like we did an amazing job, we're not doing our job. Good. We okay. are challenging values and beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so I actually, my job is to make you uncomfortable. My job for some people is actually to make them what is the truest sense of this word triggered in the sense of like they have an physical reaction to what I'm saying because it's much too close to home in terms of what they believe in. So, you know, our evaluation data would tell that story. We have folks that are just incensed. And then we have folks that absolutely think it's the best thing (laughs) since sliced bread. So yes, that sort of spectrum is true. But within those sessions, I think our facilitators, and there's, there's 42 of them, so it's been pretty incredible on a scale, would tell you that like they're just having these vulnerable conversations, especially with young men around normalizing rejection. That's a whole section of the training. Um, because men are likely to experience rejection because of our gender roles in society. And we haven't given the emotional literacy tools to do that. And so they have these really honest, vulnerable conversations, which are stunning and unique. 
And for women and non-binary folks in the other session, they would tell you that they're having conversations around what does fulfilling sex actually look like? Outside of the sexual scripts that society tells us, what do I want? So that I can know that coming into an encounter beforehand. So there are, you know, almost sort of sacred spaces in a lot of ways. Wow, that's interesting. And I, and I love the fact that you're saying if you walk away from a presentation or a session saying, we did a great job, you're not doing uh, the hard work. So good for you for being honest and true to that. Um, in one of our conversations that we had with you uh, prior to this recording, uh, you talked about the Safe City Project. Can you share anything about that to our listeners? What does What's this all about? Yeah, so London, um, before the pandemic set in, had become a UN, so United Nations designated safe city. So it's a program, it's meant to tackle sexual violence in public spaces. So that, yes, for sure, your mind might go right now to a sexual assault in a dark park. That is part of it. But it would also include things like street harassment, being catcalled, whistled at, being in public spaces, but they're actually private. So thinking like our university campuses or bars and experiencing unwanted touch. So it's meant to tackle all those issues. And London, the city of London and Inova co-chair it. And there's lots of non-traditional actors at the table, which is really cool. So the London Transit Commission's there. The police, which is a more traditional actor, but like Museum London is there, the YMCA is at the table. So they're all taking a sense of responsibility over these publicly used spaces. Now, the one that I, I'm going to make a connection for you, whether this is where you were going or not. No, go for it. The one part of the sort of action plan of Safe Cities that is linked to that post-secondary conversation is um, what we're trying to launch is called alternative reporting. Uh-huh. So we know that um, most survivors will not use the police system. And that's just factual at this point, decades of research support that. So we're talking actually less than 10 down to almost 2% of survivors engage that system. So yes, we need to continue to improve that system, but we also need to think about what are other ways that we can offer for survivors to kind of bring forward what happened to them and have something happen. And so alternative reporting does that work. It will allow survivors in London to pin on a map where something happened. And on the back end, we're gonna be able to track that. So let's say there's a bit of a trend at a particular bar. I can then go to that bar and say, hey, let's invite you into a space of leadership on this. We have bystander training. We have these policy shifts you could take on. Let's collaborate on that work. So that's coming out in September, 2022, um, which will be really important for the post-secondary uh, student population because we also know that that month is the highest rate of sexual assaults. Right. And again, with the fact that they're not likely to report them to the police, mm -hmm. this is getting at the root of it, right? And really getting at the systemic level and trying to address these issues. I, I think that's great. And I'm excited to, to see how this unfolds. Uh, this actually gets me thinking about two very high-profile cases that are uh, one that's just been completed and one that's uh, being discussed today. But I'm going to start with the uh, the recent high-profile high case of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. What do you think the impact of that case has on reporting gender violence or the public's perception around gender-based violence in the context of that case alone. Yeah, that case was a disaster. 
regardless of sort of your your thoughts on the truth of what sort of Johnny Depp did or did not do, what was sort of new and unprecedented is that the sort of full media was invited into the courtroom. That's not been done before. And so it was a performance. Every single part of that trial was like a popularity contest around whether the public thinks Johnny Depp is most likable or Amber Heard. And what that led to is, you know, you only have to open Instagram and do a quick search. It is filled with memes hating on Amber Heard, making fun of her presentation. That's not even about the facts of what happened in that relationship. (laughs) That's about the performance of it. And so what it did is it created new narratives around what domestic violence is, that it is sort of women lying, that it is women telling sob stories. Um, It also sort of really linked like he said, she said. So what we know, here's like a teaching moment. There's a difference between abuse and violence. So violence can be a one-off. Like I can punch you. That's violence. And that's not abuse. Abuse is an ongoing pattern over time of moments of violence, but where there's a power imbalance. So if, you know, I'm doing that to my kiddo over time, that's abuse because I have an immense amount of power over my kiddo and there's moments of violence over time. So Amber Heard punching Donnie Depp, totally violence. Absolutely means nothing around whether there was abuse present, but we've mixed those up in our popular narrative. So it's just done a huge disservice to what we know is actually true around domestic violence and the believability of individuals. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, we've all seen, like you said, the Instagram videos, TikTok videos, and certainly it was pushing for one side. And uh, and I know that I, I feel bad for her. I'm not saying... You know, people can have their opinions about the two people, but definitely it portrayed her far worse, I think, that she was less credible. And um, yeah, which is a shame for the integrity of what was actually going on. And now there's this case that's in our own backyard with Hockey Canada that happened in 2018, uh, where the eight uh, CHL players in London sexually assaulted a woman. So... um, what do you think the potential rollout with this case has, again, on this narrative of gender-based violence in reporting? We're in a different sphere on this one. And I'm, I'm you know, it's not done yet. Yeah. But there's some really big actors coming out in alignment. So Scotiabank coming out. I know there's been more since. Large companies pulling funding. Um, for Hockey Canada because of their handling. Not, so we're not even debating the validity of it because this is not a criminal case. Right. Um, this was settled uh, out of courts. But the handling, the hush-hushing of it. Um, and that tells a really poignant story, which is that kind of behavior is not acceptable. We need full transparency. We need you to step into leadership and not sort of hold the ego and the caliber of your players at a higher level than their behavior. And so I I think it's a really different moment than Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I also think it's really poignant that it's happening in the hockey world. So, you know, disturbing data for you a little bit. We've got about a decade of research now that supports that in the US and Canada, about 29% of men aged 18 to 25 will commit a sexual assault. So right now what's happening in your brain, one, you're like, 
excuse my language, but no fucking way, Annalise, or sort of number two, what's happening in your brain is just like, how can this be? Right. And that's because what that means is that the people that we know and love, that we can't just demonize these humans as the one in 2000, but they're, they're men that we know and love and do good things in the world still too, but they do these awful acts. And it also gives us the opportunity to sort of invite other men to hold other men to account. So the other thing that we know is that sports and fraternities have the highest rates. And I'm like very quick to say this. It's not like hockey causes rape, but what it does is it creates a subculture that allows behavior to not be held to account. So Hockey Canada did that. They didn't hold that behavior to account. They didn't create transparency. Scotiabank and others pulling out and saying no way helps create that new culture within there. It's such a moment of leadership. Mm-hmm, definitely. And uh, it's just sad to know that, like you said, that they pre- they did the hush money thing and didn't hold these players to account. It's just mind-blowing that when you're playing at that level of, of sport and you've got all these great people behind it, that they still went that far. And especially in this day of uh, post-Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement, right? Um Actually, do you have any thoughts around that? Like, where do you think uh, that movement is going or where is it at today with the whole Me Too movement? You know, it was was at its height in 2018 when this was happening. So Hockey Canada has no excuse. I will say at sort of 2022, lots of different sort of metrics or barometer checks are telling us that we've actually taken a bit of a step back. And by that, I mean, you know, People are sick of hearing it. People are saying things that are like, there's no way that 29% of guys can be sexually assaulting. So screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. Like we're getting that kind of pushback coming out stronger and stronger, which is actually what we've seen over the course of history for any social movement. When a social movement gets stronger, then we get a stronger pushback. We're seeing that in other contexts in the States right now as well. And so, you know, what's happening in the States around abortion, that's part of that pushback to me too. It feels like the tide is sort of swinging on us. Yes. And I actually did want to go there um, with that, um, with the United States, uh, you know, overturning the Roe versus Wade decision, um, making it illegal in many states for abortion. Um, do you see this having any kind of uh, domino effect here in Canada? So we have a really different system in Canada. So our, our sort of access to abortion is not based on a right. So in the States, it was based on a right, and it was really based in rights language in terms of how it moves through the court. In Canada, our access to abortion is based on it being a healthcare pro- sort of procedure. So we have access to it as much as we do in the sense of having access to miscarriage services, as much as we have access to it in terms of having like heart attack services. So it's just considered another healthcare option. And so there's some people that'll say like, we need a law. And it's like, no, we don't actually want one of those. (laughs) Because if you have like a law that sort of puts that in place, it separates it from a healthcare issue. And so there's a real value in it being a healthcare issue here. Now, our our challenge here is access in the sense of there are fewer and fewer places providing it. So, you know, LHSC in London is a real hub for that in the Southwest, but many people have to drive two or three hours to access that. And that's just in, you know, Southern Ontario. If you were talking about the actual 
like remote north, you are possibly having to fly, which means that this is not financially accessible to you. So what even is the access at that point? It's nil. So that's sort of our, our challenge right now. And I will say, you know, it still has an impact on us what happens in the States. So we will see folks coming to Canada accessing abortion. Trudeau already said, like, you're welcome to. Um, but we will also see other ways that this shows up. It will empower the pro-life movement here to sort of find other ways of limiting access in Canada. Interesting. And what do you think as a community we can do to try to, I don't know, stay on top of that and protecting gender rights, women's rights around health, right? Our own mm-hmm. health. Is, um, is there something that the average person can do? I'm going to sound a little trite, but I feel like you need to talk about it at your dinner tables. <laughs> like abortion is such a taboo conversation. And yet so many of us have had one. <laughs> so if you are in the space of being able to out that with some family and friends and like decrease that shame for those coming behind us, that would be a huge part of that. And to also just normalize it's part of healthcare. Like at this Thanksgiving dinner of 25 of us, there's probably four of us that have had one. And like, this is just part of that. So really normalizing that on some level, more strategically donate, (laughs) donate to your local pro-choice movement. If that's possible, Planned Parenthood is another great one, especially if there's a really strong Planned Parenthood in Toronto and just keep abreast. Like, don't assume that these issues, as we sort of start to see them, you know, being pushed back at don't affect you. Because at some point, you might be in a situation like American women where all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from under your feet. Yeah, which is sad. Um, I can't even believe that they've taken this giant step backwards in time uh, to take on this position. But yeah, I I agree. Normalizing the conversation and uh, raising it because it's not a dirty little secret. (laughs) It's a fact of life. And um, yeah. We need to be normalizing these discussions for sure. And that's why I'm glad to have you on this podcast so we can talk about these things. And now shifting gears, I want to talk to you about sex trafficking. You know, we've heard for a long time, we read it in the paper that London is a hub, you know, we're right on that corridor of, um, you know, on the highway strategically placed between the states and major centers like Toronto. Could you shed some light around this topic Um, What do you know about people that are being trafficked? What a broad, wonderful question that I can just go wherever I want with it. I want you to. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, here's the, I'm just going to debunk sort of truths that have been put out there. Um, So one is that sex trafficking is like the biggest issue that it is sort of more and more numerically present um, that we sort of need to be in panic mode. So a couple of things, our data is really crappy around sex trafficking. And here's why you have two organizations in London. One has one definition of what counts as trafficking. Another has another definition. We're both ticking our ticky boxes at intake. One produces data two years ago that says that there's about 50% of individuals who came through our services who were trafficked that year. Another in that same year says that there were 5,000. Those numbers get rolled up provincially, they get rolled up nationally, we're comparing apples and oranges. And so when you're actually thinking about what gets counted, many individuals sort of tick that ticky box if there's any sort of engagement in the sex trade that feels harmful. 
And that's, that's not the legal definition of trafficking. And yet that sort of is what gets ruled up. So trafficking, legally speaking, has a very confined definition. You need to have a third party benefiting from you against your consent. So you can consent to a third party, i.e. a pimp, but against your consent. And there has to be coercion present. Of course, it's a little more complicated than I just said, but like high level, this is what it is. But it's the most politicized issue right now that we have within sexual violence because it's really being taken up based on the own organization's values around sex work and prostitution. They're defining in the way that they want. They're rolling their own data up. The other tricky part is around like when we look to police data, like sex trafficking charges are very hard to lay and build a case around. The sort of burden of proof is quite high and prostitution charges are much easier to lay. And so sometimes in individual cases, those get mixed up and in all of that to say it's a mess. It is an absolute mess when we're trying to get grounded in good data. And there's a lot of sort of fear tactics around watch out girl next door. Your daughter is going to get trafficked. Well, we do know from the research that it is not your daughter who's going to get trafficked. It is somebody who is more likely to be racialized, who is more likely to sort of um, sit in significant poverty, like all of the identity intersections are going to make sure that it is not your middle class suburbia white girl living in your backyard who's going to get trafficked, that this is so much more complex. And the last little debunking I want to do quickly is that in this whole conversation around trafficking, we focus on sex trafficking, but you know statistically speaking, the majority of trafficking is actually labor trafficking. Oh, And we just miss that because of our politics on this issue. And that kind of labor trafficking, we're talking about migrant workers coming in who don't have access to the kind of legal system and information to really protect their rights around this. We're talking about people who work really precarious labor, who don't have the ability to call out harm within the workplace. So that is just done such a disservice to labor trafficking in our sort of zest to politicize the issue. Interesting. And so do you think in any way, I'm kind of linking back to your Safe City project that you were talking about, do you think in any way this can help support in tracking some clear data around this stuff? I know the Safe City project focuses on um, assault, but you would think if there was somebody being um, pulled into trafficking in any way that is against their will and not wanting to, it would feed into that or no? Or is that completely separate? Like sex trafficking is part of the spectrum of sexual violence or gender-based violence. So, I mean, safe cities in terms of addressing sexual violence in public spaces, that would be part of it. But it's a very small part of it because that is not most of the sexual violence we're seeing. I will sort of plug another project we have going on here, um, which is our spectrum of exploitation. So we got federal funding for three years to work with a collective of organizations across the country um, to use a tool that we've developed with the Sisters of St. Joseph's. And so it's a quadrant spectrum. And it really looks at, you know, trafficking is not yes or no. (laughs) Exploitation is on a spectrum. And there's limits on people's choices. So you go from total choice to absolutely no choice, but there's so many steps in between. There's so many steps in between being totally free in your workplace to being chained and handcuffed. 
And so rather than debating the apples and oranges, pin your clients along this spectrum. Let's collect some national data that then we can actually figure out what we're dealing with here. Exactly. That that to me makes sense. Um, switching topics now uh, to femicide. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this in the papers as well. Um, actually, um, I've read two different articles. One, that they're asking to declare it as an epidemic in the country or to add it, uh, the term femicide, uh, to the criminal code. Can you shed a little light on what is actually happening around this topic in Ontario or in London? I would love to hear your perspective on this. The topic is at sort of the front of our minds because an inquest in Renfrew County just wrapped up. And so that was based on three women who were killed and murdered by a former partner back in 2015. And so those would be femicides. So let's start with a definition. Femicides are the murder of women and girls because they are women and girls. And so it's not, you know, it usually happens in the context of a marital or relational breakdown, but it's very targeted um, because of sex and gender. And that inquest really opened up, you know, these things don't just happen. There's like 40 different steps before we get to the place of a murder. So in, you know, the individual Borutsky who murdered the three women, for example, that perpetrator, he'd been involved in the family and criminal justice system for over 40 years with repeated documented concerns about domestic violence and threats to others. These are on file. These are all red flags built over time with nobody sort of inserting. So that's the focus of that inquest is looking at what kind of system changes are needed there. You know, language is important. So naming it as an epidemic, sure. I feel like, you know, the health language might be a little overdone right now. That's just my personal opinion because we've been calling everything the hidden pandemic this, the hidden pandemic that. And I, I just, language is important. We want to call attention to this. The the sort of, sort of localized version of this. So in Ontario, uh, last year, we saw 58 femicides. Those are documented by a local or a provincial organization every year and the names are published. That was a higher rate. Um, that was what a lot of us assumed would happen because of the lockdowns and the pandemic. They create stress within family context. There's like less sort of eyes on it. This year, there are fewer. So that's sort of to be anticipated in a lot of ways, which is good. Um, locally, last year, we had a few. And so there's a, a few that were especially in the media. Um, so we're not without our own challenge to this. They, you know, we're not talking hundreds. So thank goodness to that. But it is an ongoing issue. And it is the apex. If you think of an iceberg, it is the very, very, very worst of what can happen in gender based violence. Right. So what lives under that iceberg? What are the preceding moments of violence and harm that are in the thousands? Yeah, for sure. So something definitely worth talking about and paying attention to. Um, so thank you for explaining that to us. I know we've bounced around from a lot of different topics, and I really appreciate your perspective on all of them. But I want to ask you our final question. What do you think Lenin can be, and how do you think we can get there together? I think this is meant to be such a visionary question, but I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I'm such a rabble rouser. I think that London can be 
like an actual leader in some of this. And I think we are, I think we're pushing the edges on some of it. Um, of course I'm selfish and I'm going to name our post-secondary Western work and sort of how that's nationally leading. But I know that we've actually had one of the strongest coordinating committees around this issue. And so there's coordinating committees across the province. We have had one of the strongest. So I'm not going to propose to you a vision where we can have a London without gender-based violence. Right. That's the easy answer to this. I am pragmatic enough to think that that is not only not going to happen in our lifetime, not our kiddos' lifetime, not our grandkiddos' lifetimes. This is so ingrained into sort of our gender behavior patterns. I think we can decrease those numbers, and I think we can be a leader nationally in the work. Mm-hmm. I think that's great what you just said. Um, very realistic and uh, pragmatic for sure. Um, you also have a podcast. I can't let this uh, the show go on without people knowing about it. Do you want to talk about it? Oh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, for sure. Uh, piece mm-hmm. by piece. So world peace by pieces of puzzle piece by piece. And it's on all of your podcast channels, as well as our website. We really have interviews and conversations around what do we need to create a world without violence? I guess I get a lot aspirational on that podcast, but um, so they're all the different pieces that we need to create that world piece. Yeah. And I do encourage people to listen to it. I've listened it to it myself and you have great guests and they're not long interviews. They're perfect, you know, just to Get, get a better understanding of what are the realities behind uh, gender issues, um, gender violence, and all of this stuff, and even um, demystify some some things too. So I, I really appreciated the learning from the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Annalise, thank you so much for being on our show. It's so good to chat with you, and uh, we know we always value your you know, your contributions to our foundation, either through writing or, or sharing your knowledge and the work that you do at ANOVA. Thank you so much. And uh, we hope to have you back too someday. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Lenning Can Be. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca forward slash what Lenin can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for listening to us.